Last week, I showed you a photo of my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters, Addie, while she was eating dog food, learning survival skills. Well, this, this week, this is one of my uh, grandchildren. This thing's supposed to work. There we go. It's not working. Here we go. Uh, something's happened here. Hold on. I'll get it right. There. There he is. Okay, that's Liam. That's my Irish grandson. And he has graduated out of Addie's class. And so this is him eating broccoli and some chicken. So we uh, graduate them quickly into uh, healthy food when you're in our clan. And that's my little grandson. But you know what's going to happen to Liam someday? One of us is going to go, Liam, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be? In fact, all of us have probably been asked that question by somebody. And almost uh, every time that's asked, you know, we kind of kind of think nothing of it until that student becomes older. And then the answer they give to that question becomes very significant about how we guide or steer them in a particular direction for education, etc. Because we know the significance of that direction is going to impact how they work, where they work, what they will be doing. So from there, we know that work matters. And let's return to the parable of the talents from last week in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. And before we begin part two on lessons from the parable, I just want to give you all a very brief review, since like most of you, you probably forgot what I said last week about the time your lunch digested, and maybe there's some, some of you who weren't here last week, so I'll give just a quick review, because again, repetition is the glue of learning. So let's, uh, let's take this off. A parable, simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The setting for this particular parable, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It is now Wednesday of Passion Week. Two days from Wednesday on Friday, two days after this parable is given, he is going to be beaten, he is going to be scourged, and he is going to die on the cross. All the people, all the disciples that are listening to this particular parable, they're going to scatter like mice, and Peter is going to deny the Lord three times. The disciples came to him privately, and they're on the Mount of Olives, just opposite the temple. And as that's going on, here is the question that the disciples ask. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus begins to answer those two questions, and he says a lot of things about woes, the great tribulation, a lot of information he gives, and then he goes into a trilogy of parables with no break in between the parables. I mentioned last week it's the parable of the householder and the servants, with one of the main lessons being how we treat one another. Then there's the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, which is about watchfulness for the Lord's return with our lamps burning as we have passion, looking for that. And then the third one is the parable of the talents. And we talked about two main lessons being emphasized in this parable. One is, while waiting for his second coming, what is the proper attitude of a follower of Christ? What's the proper attitude? And then secondly, the duty of work. As servants of the Lord, we are both to wait for the Lord and to work for him. We talked about giving diligence to our devotion and also diligence in our outward service. I mentioned how expectation increases motivation. 
And we talked about when everybody, somebody has a wedding they're getting prepared for or a special event, we always work harder, a little more efficiently the week before that event is to occur. Then we considered the duty of work and how Jesus spent the majority of his life working. I told you that even as a follower of Jesus, I really didn't have a proper understanding of work and worship. It created sort of this dissatisfaction, periods of frustration, even puzzlement, where I'd go, man, is this all there is to life? I can't believe this. What am I doing working here? People are, don't know Jesus. A lot, a lot of things I misunderstood. I had, I had a split life. I came to church on Sunday to worship or go to Bible study or whatever it was, and then I would go off to work and try my best just to try to get through the day, maybe like many of you. And remember, most of us grew up thinking and being taught that worship is sacred, labor is secular. We went back to Genesis then, and we looked at a Hebrew word, and a word that combined the concept of work and worship together, so that worship is to be a continuous act. It was, it was intended to be seamless, no, no difference between it. We went through that. Paul alludes to this, I think, pretty well in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you present your body, where are you most of the day? At work. So you're presenting your body, your work to the Lord. That's your spiritual service of worship. That's part of it. And then we said, what does worship really look like? Worship at work. What does it look like? And we said, look, our God's creative, so we're to create at work. Our God is beautiful. We're to make things better. We're to improve. We're to make things look good. Our God is a God of order, and so we're to put things in decent order as we go about. We improve processes and outcomes. We contribute and cultivate our world, making places and people better around us. And we make things and fix, fix things all while offering the peace and wisdom that God gives us and spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go through a quick reminder of what the major representations of the parable are. First one is the master is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then going on a journey represents the withdrawal of Christ's presence from earth that we saw as in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended. The servants are the Jewish apostles and disciples and those in the visible church throughout the ages and includes us. This one let's pay attention to because it will impact the lessons that we go over. The talents begin in the Old Testament as a, as a measurement. Then it, by the New Testament, it is the largest denomination of coin equal to 10 times somebody's average salary of that day. It broadly refers to all of the gifts we have, everything we've been given, education, health, funds, circumstances in life, material resources, whatever it is. And then the trading the talents came from the Greek word work or perform to trade with the idea of gaining. Again, by implication, the faithfulness that we have with the opportunities Christ gives us. After a long time, the master returns. That's the second coming of Christ. Settling of the accounts, the general principle of rewards and judgment by Jesus when he returns. And then, of course, outer darkness from verse 30 referred to the lake of fire and the second death. So work matters, and that's a quick review. So let's go now to the lessons, the lessons of the parable. 
Look at Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin in verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one. To each according to his ability, then he went away. So the first lesson of the parable is opportunities or talents for individuals vary. That seems rather straightforward and simplistic. The servants each had the same general assignment where they were expected to work and trade with the money to seek a return. But because each was given a different sum, their opportunities were different. Because someone is given five talents, another two, another one, we might be tempted to think, hey, you know what? That's not very fair. That's really unfair. But the master understood that the two-talent person did not have the capability of producing as much as the five-talent person. We know that in our lives as well. We aren't born with the exact same capacity academically or athletically as other people. And so sometimes someone might have a photographic memory. If you've ever met somebody like that, they have a real advantage over most people in lots of things. But they have no advantage necessarily over a job that requires physical strength, a lot of strength. If they haven't built up their body as well, that photographic memory is not going to do them any good in that particular line of work. Most of us are born with eyesight. Some are born or become blind. And yet the blind person like Stevie Wonder or Fanny Crosby can accomplish an amazing amount of things. In their particular field, they were both very good writers of music. <clears throat> and yet it would find, they'd find it very difficult if they were going to be interior designers or architects. And we, if we don't have the ability to do very much math, we're not likely to become engineers. Not only are we not born with the same abilities and opportunities, but we're not all born again with the same spiritual capabilities. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 states this, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And he apportions to each as he wills. So we should never think that somehow we've been ripped off or gypped because we don't have the abilities or the wealth or the education or the spiritual gifts of somebody else. You know, growing segments of our society increasingly push against the reality of this particular lesson, even to the point of absurdity. Recently, the Virginia Department of Education, just last week, decided to so alter teaching historically common mathematics up until 11th grade that they've removed Algebra 1, Algebra 2, and Geometry. Those, the result is that those subjects, they claim, will still be integrated into something, but they won't look like that. They'll be non-recognizable. And I read their rationale that the current system of mathematics is unjust. It is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Through Paul, the Lord admonished the Corinthian church, don't compare yourselves one to another. To the Romans, he wrote, hey, see how the pot, say to the potter, why have you made me this way? You know, our opportunities and talents vary 
according to our abilities. Those with more abilities usually outperform us. So then we often struggle concluding that our value is less than those that have more gifts or more abilities than we do. It feeds into the propensity that my worth is somehow less than others. So let me digress for a moment to address that. We are all created equally in the image of God. We are equally loved by Him. His sacrifice for sin is equally available to all who would believe on Him. From the time we are young, we are bombarded with messages that our worth and value to others is tied to results. To get into college, business performance, athletics, whatever it is, it is not about our effort, but about results. And we are rewarded based on our performance. This is true in athletics, academics, and business. And it should be. If you're running a business and you have salespeople and some salesman never meets his quota, are you going to retain that salesperson, even though you're a very nice person? The answer is no. You're going to know that their particular abilities is better directed somewhere else. And so this is normal. This is right. As a matter of fact, it's very admirable, and and many of you should be complimented and rewarded for your consistent efforts that earned you the degree that you have or the MBA that you have. Those didn't come out of laziness and procrastination. Your training and practice in a particular sport in which you excel, you should be commended for that. And certainly you should be rewarded in business and industry for the contributions you bring. That is healthy. That is good. But our value to God as men and women is not tied to our giftings, our abilities, or our performance. So what is our real value tied to? And how in the world are you going to determine it? You know, if we want to know what our house is worth, what do we do? We get an appraisal from a professional, or maybe we go to a real estate agent who knows what they're doing, and they sit down with us, and then they explain to you and say, hey, look, here's the approximate value of your home. But we all know this reality, and that is your home is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And it's that way about everything you sell. It's only worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. So we are valued by the price someone is willing to pay for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says this, We are purchased with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are purchased with a price. Well, what was the price? The horrific death of the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, who bled from the scourging, bled from the beatings, and then bled from dying on the cross. The crucifixion. Jesus values you and I so much that he paid the ultimate price for each of us individually. Our value is determined by the reality that we are made in God's image, and he loves us unconditionally, and he proved it. You know, in a home, we don't love a child because of what they accomplish. We just love them because they're ours. But we do reward them according to their character and their effort. So if we understand our infinite value to God, then it really doesn't matter if somebody else gets promoted over us 
or gets the raise, or if they excel beyond us or earn more money than us. It, it, just, it just doesn't matter anymore to us because our value and worth is not in that. Matter of fact, it really frees us to both love the person who is extremely wealthy and excelling as well as to love the person who is poor and has very little. We love and accept them and embrace them both the same. Very freeing. So let's look at another lesson. God gives us everything we need to accomplish the assignments he has called us to. The master gave each servant what they needed to accomplish his purpose for them. We are tempted to feel sorry for the servant that got the one talent, aren't we? But in reality, he received as much as $1 million in today's currency from the master. And what did he do with it? He buried it in the backyard. He was given more than enough to meet the master's expectations. Don't think that, oh, that poor guy with the one talent. Look what he was left with. In the story, there are no restrictions on how any of the three were to use their talents. They were perfectly free to pursue whatever opportunities that they wanted. So none of us can say, why did you ask me to do something, God? You didn't give me the ability, the health, the intellect, or the tools to do it. Wow, what's, what's, God, what'd you do? We don't have, we can't do that. I love what Second Peter says. Listen to this in his letter. He says this, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has given each of us everything we need for life and godliness. For godliness, Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. So that is it written, let no one, if anyone's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. And when it comes to life, God will provide whatever he has called you to do. Good friend of mine, Mark Richardson. A few of you here still remember Mark, may know him. When, before Mark and I were married, we lived together in an apartment. He was 26 years old, had a degree from Florida Bible College in Bible. And he was up here helping the youth group, and he really didn't have much money. We were living together. And about 26 years old, Mark comes to me and he says, You know what? I think, uh, I, think I want to be a doctor. I think the Lord's called me to be a doctor. I'm thinking, what? And uh, so here's what happens. No money. He didn't do that well even in Bible college. And so he doesn't have anything to get in. He ends up applying to the the Air Force, and they accept him. They end up paying for all of his medical training, everything that goes on. He ended up becoming an orthopedic surgeon, served a tour or two in Iraq, putting bodies back together. And now he's head of his department in orthopedics in a hospital. And he's got 10 children to boot, so God had to provide for all of that. And, you know, I've told many stories about the farm, and a lot of you have heard these before maybe, but when I was out at Sun, what's Sunset Hills Vineyard in Percival, when, I, when the Lord took uh, Diane and the family and I out there, after closing, we had $4,000 left, and I was not working any type of formal job, and the whole place was a disaster. And so it had about 16 acres And I ended up buying a tractor from a friend, a very small tractor, that I could handle about an acre, acre and a half around the house with for $1,000. Now I'm down to three. And so I've got all these acres to mow. It's early May, and everything is starting to grow. It's going to get tall. All these acres, and I'm thinking, this is going to be a disaster. 
and just ugly. Lord, what in the world am I going to do? How am I going to do this? So in mid-May, the neighbors there in that part of the world, the neighbors, you need binoculars to see them when they come out of their house. Okay, you're spread out. This neighbor who I'd never known comes down one day and he says, hey, uh, my name's so-and-so. Would you, uh, I've got a friend in the FBI who's head of counterterrorism, and he's, his, he's a hobbyist in tractors. He grew up as a farm boy in New York, and he'd like a place to store his tractors. Would you be willing to store his tractors in your, one of your empty barns? I said, sure, I'd be glad to meet him. So I go meet Mike Donner. He comes out, and we have a talk, and here's what he says. Hey, if you'll let me store my three 1945 farmall tractors right in your barn, I'll be glad to mow your fields for you in exchange for that. And I'll do it three times a year. I was like, yeah, buddy. So, I mean, what are the chances of that? They're like zero. And I could tell you dozens of stories just like that when, when the Lord took us out to that place. And eventually we moved from the farm and we went to, the Lord took us to another place where there were a lot of fields that needed to be mowed. So I moved me, the family, and Mike Donner right along with me, and he mowed the next set of fields. And we had a great relationship for about 15 years, him doing that. Now let's go down to verse 21. Verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Both the one who received five and the one who received two talents, the exact same praise and equal reward was given to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. I will set you over much, enter into the joy of the Lord. So the next lesson is the number of our talents doesn't limit our reward. The Lord rewards the same faithful effort regardless of how the outcome compares to somebody else. Yes, yes, I know. The guy with the five and the guy with the two, they went out and invested it, and they both got 100% return for their master. I get it. But if the guy with two had come back with one and three quarters talents, what do you think the master was going to say? We know from other scripture, he just said, well done, you good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, you've been faithful with little, I'll make you ruler over much. So once again, no, no matter how limited we see our own intellect, our education, our abilities, our talents, our bank account, it will not limit our reward from Christ. That reward is determined by our faithfulness with what we have. And we can be as faithful as the next person, but there is no promise that it will ever translate to wealth or ease on earth. Never. Many times, it does translate to opportunities and, and additional things, but not always. Many people around the world have been faithful to the Lord Jesus, and they never had anything but hardship. Maybe they were in prison for Christ and suffered before they died. And so it's not about what you get on earth, but you will receive the reward before the Lord. Remember the widow in the temple? Jesus is there with the disciples. She comes along, casts her two mites into the treasury, and Jesus says to the disciples, hey, you notice that widow? She cast in all that she had. And I'm telling you, it was more than anybody else that cast in, because she cast in everything. Note verse 21 again as we come to the next lesson. Faithful diligence will always be recognized. The Lord delights in rewarding faithfulness. Faithfulness in today's situation 
will always result in new, expanded opportunities. Frequently, on earth, if you are diligent and faithful in what you do, you will usually get new and expanded opportunities. But not always. But the Lord who made the eye and sees everything that you do, He is going to give you new expanded opportunities. That's why He said in the parable, You have been faithful with little. Behold, I will make you ruler over much. So you needn't be discouraged when the people you work for don't recognize what you're doing and the value you bring. They don't give you the bonus or the raise you thought you should have had. And so you needn't be discouraged by that at all. Take the situation you've been given and be faithful with that. Remember, we work for the master. We are all stewards. The motive for us to achieve isn't for selfish purpose, to bask in pleasure or praise. The money that is given to the servants is not their own. The money they earn with the capital is not theirs to keep. The servants are only stewards of the master's investment. And it's the quality of their effort for that stewardship, in that stewardship, that the master seeks to reward. The key character quality here is diligence. Diligence. Diligence can be defined this way. Accepting each task as a special assignment from the Lord and investing my time and energy to complete it. It has words associated with it like earnest, determination, being prompt, and energetic. One of the word pictures in the, in the Hebrew for diligence is this. It's digging a ditch or it's mining for gold. So here's a few questions you can answer to help uh, take inventory about whether or not we are diligent. A few questions to just answer to yourself. And if you're married, of course, you can jab your spouse. Do we do a job to first please the Lord and then our employer? Do we go the extra mile working wholeheartedly to complete each job? Do we complete an assigned task quickly and enthusiastically? Or do we reluctantly fit it into our schedule? And if you're a student watching, do you do your assigned chores quickly and thoroughly that your parents, so your parents consider you a diligent worker? You know, Thomas Brooks said this quote, The lazy Christian has his mouth full of complaints when the active Christian has his heart full of comfort. It's a great quote. Solomon said this, See a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before average men. Proverbs chapter 22. That's a general truth. There's many examples in history, isn't there? What about Billy Graham? How he began. And he ended up standing before world leaders all over his history. John Rockefeller started out just as a, a, an associate accountant or bookkeeper at 16 years old. Then he helped, helped work in some other businesses until he was 20, focused on some things in oil. He ended up in the 1800s becoming the richest man in the U.S. I know nothing about his spiritual condition. And then what about Susan Boyle? Remember her? Susan Boyle of, of, uh, of America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent or whatever it was. Here, here everybody was making fun of her when she came out on the stage. She was a single woman living by herself with just her cat. 
She had spent much of her life just caring for her mom. But one of the things she did, she maintained her faithful diligence singing in the choir at church and keeping her voice going. She began to sing. And now she ended up singing before uh, kings and presidents all over the world. Many of us naturally tend to make soft choices and let others do the hard work. But here's the question. How do you develop diligence? What is the key to diligence? You know, when you look in a dictionary and you look up the word diligent, you could very well see the picture of my wife there because she's incredibly diligent. I live with somebody that's diligent. I'll be like in Google on that, you know, page 1 million, 100 and whatever. I might be down there. There were many times in my life where I was not that diligent and the Lord had to build it into me over time. So what is it that the key to becoming diligent? First, you have to become convinced of who do you work for? Who do you work for? Listen to what it says in Colossians, in that letter we went through some uh, weeks ago. It says this. It says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, in other words, while they're looking at you, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Because whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So we're to see ourselves as working for the Lord because that's, in fact, who we are working for. Therefore, our motivation for diligent labor is to realize that we don't work just for an earthly employer. And because Jesus Christ is our employer, We don't need to worry about being recognized for our efforts or what we invest in the quality of our work. Nor do we have to wonder about, is what we are doing diligently and faithfully, is it going to be be remembered or is it going to be ignored? No, he's going to remember everything you do privately in your closet. When other people just reject you and they think you're worthless and you've got nothing to offer and you're doing some menial job, and believe me, I've done them, But when I know, my Lord, I'm working for him, I can sweep a house with diligent energy when nobody's around. I can peel off wallpaper, whatever. I can mow grass hour after hour and not not be worried about whether I'm seen or rewarded or anything because the Lord will reward faithful excellence. With this understanding, we should be motivated to fulfill the instruction of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 where it says this, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So let's tie all of this in back to the parable. Remember, the disciples are asking the two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your return? And Jesus gives those three parables. Treat one another the right way while I'm gone. Be looking for my return. And then here's what I want you to do while you're waiting for me while I'm gone. I want you to work. And I want you to work with a right attitude unto me. That's what I want you to do. And so our worship and our work, instead of being split, become seamless and connected. And we're out there to improve people and things. But you know, there is one more lesson we have to cover. And it's a very sober one. And it really changes the tenor and the atmosphere of this morning. And that is this lesson. 
The danger of misjudging the character of the master. The danger of misjudging the character of the master. Let's go down and pick it up in verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, not reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you didn't scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you can have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You thought I reaped where I didn't sow and gathered where I didn't scatter seed? Then you should have at least invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming again, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth. There will always be those who misjudge the character of the, of the master. In the context, he is referring to the Jewish people. They had the prophets. They had John the Baptist. They saw Jesus' miracles. They heard the wisdom of his teaching. He had, he had told them outright that he was God in flesh, which is why they wanted to stone him and kill him. So he had, he had done that. And yet, what did they do? They misjudged his character. They accused his works of being from the devil. And there are those right today who misjudge the character of the Lord. When we misjudge God, we misuse what we have been given. We see that all around us. People then take all that they've been given and they use it for proud or, or purposes to gain power over other people or to simply live in pleasure. And we will all be held accountable for what we do. The parable of the talents is not about salvation through works of righteousness, but about how we use our work to fulfill our earthly callings. It's about whole life stewardship. The unfaithful steward in this parable didn't so much waste his master's money, he wasted the opportunity. And as a result, he was judged wicked and lazy. We are responsible for what we do for God with what we've been given. And one day, we will be held responsible. The Bible continually warns of a place called hell, continually. There are over 162 references in the New Testament alone which warns of hell. Seventy of those references are uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is what Jesus says about hell. He uses the term outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, torments, tormented in this flame in Luke chapter 16, fire, everlasting fire, furnace of fire, hell fire. The fire is not quenched. Eternal damnation everlasting punishment. Those are sobering words, sobering words. If you are streaming, maybe you've been here for some time or you're new and you're a skeptic. You're not a follower of Christ. You don't claim to be. You're honest about that. 
You know, we're not trying to scare you into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. But this parable and Christ is warning. He first reveals how good he is, how loving and kind is the master. He demonstrated that on earth. He demonstrated that in history, how merciful he is again and again. And he even rewards us for using what he gave us in the first place. Why do we deserve a reward for heaven's sakes? We're just doing what we ought to be doing. We're his creation. And yet he even rewards us, giving us more than we earned or deserved. And in light of that, if we reject that, if anyone turns and says, no, no, God's, God's not good. No, God's not fair. No, he's not this. He's not that. You misjudge him. You are in danger of this consequence that he talks about. So he talks about reward, and then he explains and warns with, these, in, with this incredible consequence. It talks about outer darkness. Outer, I don't know, but you know, there was a time that I was downtown. I heard in the cap center all of this roaring, all of this celebration going on as the hockey game was going on. But I didn't have a ticket. I couldn't get in. And I really wanted to go in there and to find out what the celebration, what was going on. I wanted to be a part of that. But I was left on the outside. And then it talks about darkness. Not just the kind of darkness that you and I experience, but a darkness that is so permanent and so deep, you can see nothing. But you go, wait a minute, Bruce, it's talking about fire and everlasting fire, and fire gives off light. So how is it dark and light at the same time? Isn't that a contradiction? Not at all. Suppose everyone's made blind. So then there's the, there's the fire, but you can't see it, but you feel it. Now look, I have no idea whether it's going to be literal fire or not. Could be, might not be, might be symbolic. But what, it's, what is it symbolic of? It's symbolic of torment, of pain and anguish, weeping and grinding of teeth. Why would any of you that have the opportunity to read the precious good news of Christ reject him? I plead with you, don't wait any longer. This is a serious, serious consequence. It's quite straightforward. God said he so loved the world, so loved you individually, that, if you, that he died for you, and if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ, he will grant to you, give to you eternal life. You simply have to acknowledge that you're a sinner lost and you cannot save yourself. And that believe Jesus is exactly who he said he is. God in flesh, loving and kind, died for you and rose again. Just put your faith in that. And today you can have eternal life. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do pray for anyone that's streaming or might be here, that they won't wait any longer, that they will put their faith in you today. They will acknowledge that they've misjudged you. They've misjudged your character. And for the rest, I thank you for these men and women who labor in business and industry. Many of them have hard bosses, difficult customers, strenuous situations. Some have boring jobs thankless jobs, things that are in the background. They wonder if there'll ever be another job. There are those who are in long-term unemployment, seeking to work. I pray for you to bless them and direct them to work. That's your will, that we make it our ambition to work with our hands 
so that we're not dependent on others. Please encourage all these folks to do their work unto you so that they'll know that they are rewarded for the effort that they give because you see everything. Give them great joy in what's ahead for them this particular week and bless them richly, including the moms who are raising and laboring in teaching and training little children. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.